0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I want everybody in the game right now for the people, not for the folks with money, not for the billionaires, not for the giant corporations. And I think going straight up the middle on the corruption plan is the first one. Knock them back. And while they're all scrambling, then start passing the rest of it.
2: Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Elizabeth Warren, who some of you may know from such elections as the 2020 election. You know, when the primary was just starting, uh, there was a pretty broad sense that Warren was getting a raw deal. There had been the shakiness and the misstep around the, the DNA testing as a response to, to Donald Trump's constant racist taunts. And then there's this feeling that Warren, who is clearly brilliant and knew more about policy than anybody in the field, and probably most of the field combined, and was releasing all these thoughtful and comprehensive plans, was being left behind for sort of flavors of the moment. And so she was in fourth or fifth or sixth, and and, and there was Pete Buttigieg, and there was uh, you know Kamala Harris, or and more, more to the point, Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders up there in one and two. And now Warren, I think, is being much more appreciated. She's Moved into a pretty consistent third place in the polls. Uh, when you talk to people in Iowa or New Hampshire, or she was just out here in California for the California Democratic Convention, she is getting a lot of the best crowd response. People are the most impressed by her. Um, there was a poll the other day showing her actually winning head to head matchups with Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, which surprised me. You know, something that has happened with Warren is, I think, a, a flaw of the electability conversation where electability isn't actually about electability. But it is about people's perceptions of other people's perceptions of candidates, right? Not what you think of someone, but what you think other people might think of someone. And the thing that seems to me to be happening with Warren is that actually it's just more and more people think what they think of her. It's coming clear how talented of a candidate she is. You know, something that, that was afflicting her candidacy early on, I heard this all the time, was uh, uh, the aftertaste of Hillary Clinton, right? A uh, fear that Elizabeth Warren would, would be clinton and, you know, one can't say that that won't happen, but but there's in particular this feeling that, you know, well, Hillary Clinton had plans too. Hillary Clinton had all these policies too and see where it got her. Um, now, one thing to say is, of course, that Hillary Clinton, I think, probably would have won that election if he ran it nine out of 10 times and obviously did win the popular vote. But but putting that aside um, and putting the sort of weird circumstances of James Comey and, and all the rest of it aside, something that Warren is quite masterful at is how she presents policy. And it's something that that it's worth paying attention to in in this conversation. My old editor, Mark Schmidt, used to say, it's not what you say about policy, it's what your policy says about you. And what Warren is able to do, which Clinton often wasn't, and which a lot of politicians aren't, is she releases plans to say something about herself, her plans are, are a messaging document for Warrenism. They're they're about her, right? That she has a plan for everything. She's very uh, thoughtful and sharp about leaning into that, right? She's a person with plans. She is prepared. But also every one of her plans is about an idea of how society should be ordered and what she thinks about it. Warren Unlike Clinton, who struggled with this, Warren is really painting herself as the change agent, the candidate who cares about restructuring, in particular, how economic power is distributed in society. And every one of these plans is saying that thing again and again and again, whether it is the wealth tax or the or the pre-K plan or the effort to um, do co-determination and put workers on corporate boards, whatever, or the corruption plans. like These are all, again and again, points Warren is making about how she views power. But what I wanted to talk with her about was, how do you actually get any of them passed? You can talk plans all you want, and we can discuss the differences between Warren's plans and Sanders' plans and Buttigieg and Biden and Harris and Booker. But they're all going to be facing the US political system. They may be facing Mitch McConnell, Senate majority leader, um, but they're definitely not going to be enjoying 75 Democratic votes in the Senate. So how do they pass anything? What is the plan behind the plan? Um, And so that is what Warren and I spoke about here. Uh, she came in. Um, full, Warren is a really, really energetic presence. Uh, there, there are a lot of politicians who come in and they kind of sit down and they seem a little sleepy. She doesn't. And so this just jumps right in. She she came in and, and, and she was going on, I think, some pretty interesting insights about campaigning itself right from the beginning. So we're going to start right there. Um, as always, you can email me at vox.com. Again, at Vox.com. But here is Senator Elizabeth Warren.
1: How are you? I'm doing just great. How How's are the trail? You? you know, I love it. It's, it's fun because you get to get out and do two things. One is you get to tell people about ideas uh-huh. that matter to them. And you watch people's eyes as they try it on or, mm-hmm. or work through it. And the other is you get feedback. And, and sometimes it comes in the most intimate ways but it's a piece of saying yeah i get how this so i'll give you an example of that i was at a town hall on sunday and lots of people are coming through the line afterwards we're doing a big selfie line huge selfie line a big vigorous town hall i talked about mental health in the town hall and in the selfie line a woman said i'm so glad you talked about mental health issues i've lost both my children because they've had serious mental health problems. And she said, my son killed himself two months ago, which is just awful. And she said, there was no place for him to go. She says, it's not even a question. She said, we have, actually, we have good insurance, but there's no place to go. There are no beds. There's no help. And, and he ended up killing himself. And we hugged, we talked a little, and she went on. And about eight more people deeper in line. (sighs) Big guy shook my hand and he said, I'm really glad you talked about mental health. And I said, why? And he said, oh, he said, "Uh, I work as a corrections officer. He said, but that's not what I really wanna do. He said, I was a mental health worker. Mm -hmm. And he said, and then lack of funding, they closed us up and laid off 200 people. And then he looked at me and said the same thing. He said, and now there's no place for people with problems to go. And you just watch those pieces come together in close and intimate ways. We talk about funding in Washington. You know, the numbers are in the billions, the tens of billions of dollars. But behind every one of us is a mother who lost a son, a guy who lost a job, Mm and a good person who's now gone.
2: You know, something um, that has always struck me about politicians I've covered is that there is a huge difference between the ones who see campaigning as a one-way project and those who see it as a two-way project. Oh, There's a real big difference between campaigning just to broadcast and then using campaigns as a way of getting information and getting a sense of what do people need you to do. And it's not something I think we cover well in terms of candidates. Like, Are they actually hearing anything? But it does seem it does seem important to me.
1: You know, there's a funny part in that, and that is for me why it's important that the rooms be lit. Huh. So I don't. It, it, there's a big difference. Sometimes events are set up in theater spaces, whether they have chairs or not. But you know what I mean—a stage and then a big audience. And the question is whether the audience is in the dark, as it would be if you were mm-hmm. watching a performance, or do you keep the house lights up and I insist every time, keep the house lights up. I need to see faces because that's another part of the interaction. It's it's more than just words. It's everybody who gives in the middle of when you're talking about something, about the dress or minimum wage or mental health issues, the small nods that say, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. And that I learn as I give a talk how it it migrates over time to where where the people are and if I'm not getting a response I know I'm not explaining it well or mm-hmm. it's not a point that resonates with people so it, it's a there's a lot of it's a it's actually a very uh, close and intimate interaction even with a thousand people at a time or a couple of thousand it's the eye-to-eye face-to-face. It's the nod. I know the story. It's the confirmation. Yeah, I I get this. And yeah, I'm ready to get in this fight.
2: So I'm going to jump us past the sure. campaign. It is day one of the Elizabeth Warren administration. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of plans.
1: Mm-hmm. What comes first? <laughs> so I've already promised. I'll do the things that I can do as president on my own. So day one, I will sign a moratorium. No more drilling, no more mining on federal lands, our national parks, no offshore drilling. Uh, oh, and uh, Secretary of Education, who's been a public school teacher, somebody who believes in public education. Oh, and uh, head of the EPA, who uh, is not a coal lobbyist. You know, it's, it, this is how I think of this. Look at the tools in the toolbox, right? What are all the tools? What are the ones that a president can do i love this word by herself uh and what are the ones you got to get congress and then what's the plan to get congress on board for that you know part of what i do right now in all of the town halls i'm not just in the early states this is not only about winning the primary although it's certainly that it's not only about winning in november of 2020 it's about building the national momentum the energy the demand side to start making real change in January 2021.
2: So I want to I put the toolbox because I want to come back Good. to that. Because um, I do want to talk about executive authority. But you have a bunch of big legislative yes. projects. Yes. One of them will have to come. You'll have to put your political capital into something first. Oh, of it. them, what comes first?
1: The best place to start is with the corruption package. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, is that the rich and the powerful have been calling the shots in Washington forever and ever and ever, it feels like. I mean, many, many decades. And they're not going to turn loose easy. They're not going to just say, oh, well, okay, now you need a wealth tax. Now you want to make these other investments. So part of it is to disrupt the influence of money in Washington. It's to push back against the lobbying industry. It's to say to all those Congress people and their chiefs of staff, hey, this is your job and you're not going to have an opportunity to lobby afterwards. So don't be looking over the horizon at your next job um, and adjusting your behavior accordingly right now. I want everybody in the game right now for the people. Not for the folks with money, not for the billionaires, not for the giant corporations. And I think going straight up the middle on the corruption plan is the first one. Knock them back. And while they're all scrambling, then start passing the rest of it.
2: Do you need to start with the filibuster before you can do any of those plans?
1: It depends. That's That depends, A, on whether or not we have a majority <laughs> on our side in the Senate. And it depends on what Mitch McConnell does. Um,
2: but you know what Mitch McConnell will do.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. But I always want to say he's he, he is the one who will determine that. But I'll say this for sure. And that is this business that Democrats play by one set of rules and Republicans play by a different set of rules, those days are over when I'm president. We're not we're not doing that anymore. So I watched what is the difference in the rules, would you say? Oh, come on. I watched Mitch McConnell when the Republicans were in the minority in the Senate. And President Obama was in the White House, and uh, uh, the Democrats obviously were in the majority in the Senate. He used every rule, every trick, every blue slip, every right to delay, to hold back, to keep anything from passing. And Democrats largely respected that. Said, "Well, those are the rules." Then, when it flips and the Republicans. Are in the majority it all starts to look different and then when the republicans are in the majority now uh, they steal a seat right they steal a supreme court seat when the republicans are in the majority and barack obama is still president of the united states now the republicans have donald trump as president and they're in the majority in the in the senate and the rules are entirely different from where they were before so watch what's happening, not just with the Supreme Court, but with judges mm-hmm. up and down the line. So uh, Mitch McConnell has made clear that there is no point of principle. For him, it is all about power. So here's my pushback against that. When I get elected, it's not to go to Washington to talk about change. It's to go to Washington to make change. That That is what the electoral process is all about. And I think that's going to be the demand side, what millions of people across this country are going to say, okay, now let's get this done. So I think the role of the president in that case is going to be for me to say, here's our agenda, here's what we go after. We start with the corruption. Uh, We go to the two cent wealth tax, uh, uh, universal preschool, universal health care, universal child care. We go to these big pieces and we have enough demand side, enough people around this country who are still engaged, who don't just say, well, November 2020, we got rid of Trump. Let's quit. No, but who say, I'm still in this fight.
2: So if you are lucky enough to have a majority, mm-hmm. it'll be 51, 52, mm-hmm. I mean, outside 53 in the Senate. Sure. So then you get into the filibuster. You were the first senator yep. to call for its abolition this mm-hmm. time. Your colleagues are not there. Well, what argument would you make to them to say, get rid of it? Because um, you're not going to get that corruption package passed with the filibuster in place.
1: Look, I think this is one of the reasons to run on plans, because if you get elected, <laughs> On those plans, it gives me the capacity to turn around and say to my colleagues, hey, that's what I ran on. That's what the majority of the American people voted for. That's what they got out and fought for. So as a democratic party, that's what we got to do.
2: There's an argument that you hear a lot lately that before anything else happens, the next president needs to focus on climate change because climate change has a ticking clock attached to it. What do you think of that?
1: So I think there's a lot of truth in that. That's why I've said on the first day that I am sworn in, I'll put a moratorium in place so there'll be no new drilling, no new mining on federal lands, no offshore drilling. That's something within the capacity of the president of the United States. It's a difference to make from day one. And remember, that's pretty significant, putting all our federal lands, nearly a quarter of our land mass on the side of helping the climate instead of being a a source of uh, more carbon in the air. Um, I also think that it's not just a point of first and first day. It's having a big enough vision of what we need to do and how we're going to get it done. Um, And that's, that's a big part of what I'm working on.
2: Tell me about your your theory of how that power sequences, because there's been for a long time, I think of you, that presidents have... Up to a hundred days, right? <laughs> they have maybe they don't even have that anymore. But but in theory, you know, you have this hundred days, you can do a lot then. But every single day you're there, power drains out of the office, controversy builds, people get tired. You get nearer to the next election. Um, do you have a different theory of it? Do you think that there's a way to to sequence your agenda such that you're building momentum as opposed to losing it, or do you really have to say, you know, it's going to be these one or two or three legislative fights, and that's all the system can handle uh, in a big way in a first term?
1: No. Uh, So here's my theory of it. It starts now. That's what true grassroots building is about. Right now, when more and more people get engaged in specific issues, Green New Deal, more and more people are right in that Mm -hmm. fight and say, that matters to me. Medicare for all, in that fight, that matters to me. Student loan debt cancellation, 43 million Americans who would be affected by my proposal there, that matters to me. 12 million kids who could be affected by childcare and universal pre-K for all our three-year-olds and four-year-olds, that matters to me. As those issues over the next year and a quarter get clearer, sharper, they're issues worth fighting for. And issues where we truly have leadership on it, have people out there knocking doors over it, that's where the legislative agenda starts. It starts a year and a half before the election. Then the idea is to take that energy from the election and take it straight into Congress. And and let me just do one more about the, the laying the foundation. We're doing a big part of that right now. I am. So for example... I've got a plan to just attack this opioid crisis head on uh, for far too long. We've been nibbling around the edges at it. Every year you watch the number of opioid deaths. People Mm -hmm. who are addicted keep going up. Every year the government spends a little more money, but the government's always behind the curve. And today in America, what is it, an estimated... 193 people or so will die from an overdose, like a plane crash. Happen again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And yet, if a beloved friend of yours, your sister or your brother came to you and said, okay, I know I've got a problem, they have a less than one in six chance getting the medical treatment they need. Not because we don't know what to do, but because right now, It's just not there. The facilities aren't there. The help is not there. We haven't built the help that people need so that we can break the back of this crisis and deal with it in a truly effective manner. So what do we do? Uh, Elijah Cummings and I, last year, We talked with the doctors, we talked with the healthcare professionals, the people who are um, uh, patients and patient advocacy groups, lots of different groups, and gotten the outlines of a bill together. And we introduced that last year, got a lot of co-sponsors. This year, we had some improvements on that bill. We got more co-sponsors, and we laid out how we'd pay for it, and we introduced it again. Now, here's my hope is that they'll run it over in the House all the way through the legislative process, hold hearings on it, get a vote on it. Because look at the position that puts us in come January 2021. If we have Democratic majority in the House and the Senate and we've already vetted these bills, we've already run them through the process, we've already talked about them out there in public with voters Now we've got a chance to start making a real difference early. And you asked me about my theory about this. This is the importance of engaging everyone. The importance not just of talking to other senators and and representatives, but the importance of engaging people across this country. You start to win and you can keep winning. So first thing I want to do is I want to push back. I want this anti-corruption bill. But the second thing I want is that wealth tax. Two cents on the one-tenth of 1%, the greatest fortunes in this country, $50 million and above. And for two cents, we can provide universal child care, universal pre-K, uh, raise the wages of all of our childcare workers and pre-K workers, universal technical school, two-year college, four-year college. And cancel student loan debt for 95% of the people who've got it. We cancel student loan debt for 43 million Americans across this country. The vision of what government can do and whose side government is on changes just like that.
2: So now I want to then go back to the president's toolbox.
1: Mm-hmm. Something
2: that is different about you than a lot of candidates is you've actually set up an executive branch agency. Yeah. And then as a senator, you've been a lot more focused on the regulatory process than yeah. others have. What powers does a president have that people don't realize the president oh. can use?
1: So first, just start with those agencies because you got me started there. You know, most of those agencies were built at a time when we believed in government and we believed that by having these specialized agencies, that would help make us safer and wealthier and help promote the common good. And that was true whether you were talking about the Food and Drug Administration, right, or the Department of Commerce or the Environmental Protection Agency. And those agencies still have a huge number of tools there is an enormous. So, give me an example
2: of one that people don't think of.
1: Um. So let me think. Well, obviously, the Environmental Protection Agency, and people think of that one a lot. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Heard of it? You've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but look at that. It has the capacity because it has the expertise. It has the the long term. People are there longer than the term of a president, right? They develop expertise in an area, and. So long as they stay focused on mission and have a courageous director, there's an enormous amount that these agencies can do. So first job of a president, you want to understand tools in the toolbox, is you think about the head of every one of those agencies and you look for someone who's got the vision, who understands the job of the Food and Drug Administration is to be on the side of people who are trying to get a prescription filled, right? And to make that work better, it's to get that generic drug market that's 90% of all the drugs in America, or at least could be, to get that market up and working. And if it's not, to start finding alternatives. What tools have you got in the FDA's toolbox to make this happen? So someone who's aggressive, somebody who's ready to get in the fight, you get the right people at the tops of those agencies, Personnel is policy here. The tools are already embedded in the agencies. It's just going to take somebody to pick them up and use them.
2: So you're a capitalist at a time when democratic socialists have become popular. What is the difference between you and the democratic socialists? Where do you disagree?
1: So all I can do is tell you what I believe in. I because I can't I can't tell you about anybody. Do else. you
2: think you don't disagree?
1: I don't know. Uh, but let me tell you what I believe in. Because this is the part I believe in markets. I believe in the benefits that come from markets, that two people coming together or two companies or a company and a person coming together to exchange goods and services, yay! That's how we build a lot of wealth in this country and a lot of innovation and create a lot of opportunity. But markets without rules are theft. And so it's absolutely crucial that if we're going to have a market economy that works, that you got to have a set of rules around it. You know, look back to the lead up to the crash in 2008. You and I talked about this in the past, mm-hmm. right? The big banks that looked around and said, whoa, we can make a lot of money uh, <clears throat> cheating people, right? Tricking them on mortgages that nobody ever would understand. That first big round of subprime mortgages that went out, it didn't go out to people trying to buy a home. That The first years of those mortgages went to refinance people, particularly African-Americans and Latinos who had already bought homes. These were just tricking, scamming mortgages that got people to sign up for what they were told were lower monthly payments or what they told was a little cash up front to repair the roof. And that two years later ended up costing them their homes. And that industry, those bankers, Once they had perfected their techniques on black and brown communities, they then went all over the nation and not only nearly brought our economy to its knees, but nearly crashed the worldwide economy. Now, that's a market that isn't working. That's a market where you need regulation and you need regulators who enforce those regulations.
2: So so let me see what I think is the um, what I understand to be the difference people have here, which is. There is a view that the market has taken over too many spheres of particularly American life, that there are things in the market ranging from increasing the education to private health insurance that markets just should not be part of. And then the other side of the debate is people say, no, having competition in those if you structured it correctly would be good. So practically in those two areas, like healthcare and education, should there be markets?
1: Oh, I, I think that markets mostly don't work in those areas. Mm-hmm. It's not to say there aren't pieces that you could make work. But no, um, healthcare is something that is a basic human right, and we fight for basic human rights. Public education is public education because it's not market-driven. Markets don't work well here. Um, There are whole areas where we can't and shouldn't try to use markets. But for buying and selling goods, yeah, uh, I think markets work if you have the right kinds of regulations in place, I think they they give an opportunity for a lot of creativity and the creation of, of widespread wealth. And when I say that, I don't just mean for billionaires to become double, triple billionaires. If you've got the right set of rules in place, it means you're creating the kind of growth that lets families, lets individuals really build some security and some some going forward opportunity for themselves and their
2: kids. I get the sense that you think we're in a period where you got to save capitalism from the capitalists. That if you don't actually have a change in overall government policy, you're actually going to lose a generation of people from believing in the kinds of things you're talking about. Philosophically, is that is that fair?
1: Well, it's not only about believing, it's about the reality. I I mean, I just look at this now what we've got in this country is not sustainable. We have an economy and a government that work better and better and better for a thinner and thinner and thinner slice at the top. And worse and worse and worse for everyone else. And that just can't work forever. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Because it's it's not only how these markets work. It's about what are our values? What kind of a people are we? What what kind of a country do we see ourselves as wanting to build? And look at it this way. I was talking a minute ago about the two cent wealth tax. So my proposal is a tax on the 75,000 biggest fortunes in this country. If you've got more than $50 million, the 50 millionth and first dollar gets taxed at two cents yeah but then why would you ever work <laughs> hold on <laughs> oh yeah and then two cents on every dollar after that right okay two cents and what could we do with two cents look at the opportunity bills in child care and early childhood education and technical school and college and and freeing up people from from huge debt burdens. Think about this in terms of, it's a values question there. Is it more important that the, think of it this way, the bottom 99% last year paid all in on their taxes, 7.2% of their total wealth. Top 1%, they paid 3.2% of their total wealth. The big fortunes, and here I'm just doing the top one-tenth mm-hmm. of one percent, are so big now, and they are growing on their own. This is Piketty and Sayas and others. They are growing on their own. The, the, they are now capital. You don't have to work mm-hmm. if you've got one of those big fortunes. Those things are managed by professional managers. They keep growing on their own. They keep accumulating more wealth so that just two cents... Would give us enough to reinvest and help to level that playing field again. So let
2: me try to take what I think ends up being the other side of the argument. Okay. Um, In terms of values, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. But what seems to happen is twofold. You begin talking about that, and it's Mm -hmm. not that people wouldn't like to see those fortunes taxed. Mm -hmm. It's that you get caught up in two things. One is, well, the government is going to waste that money. We're here in California. High speed rail, not going (laughs) to happen. There are, you know, people remember healthcare.gov. There is, on the one hand, a weaponized effort to make government seem bad at doing things. But also there are times when government is bad at doing things. But then the other more poisonous one is people come up like Donald Trump and they say, you know, it's fine when the government does things. But the problem is it's going to take that money and do it not for you. It's gonna do it for people who don't look like you, or it's all getting eaten up by immigrants. And so you end up, it seems to me with two blockages to that kind of work. One is people's mistrust of the government, some of it fair, some of it um, not as fair. But the other is a fight over who should benefit um, and a feeling that they're not gonna be the people who do benefit, whoever they might be. Um, so how do you talk to those folks?
1: So I got a plan for that. <laughs> do, do you? I do. <laughs> so- Listen to what I was just talking about. It's that I pair these things together. It's the two cent wealth tax and student loan debt cancellation for 43 million Americans.
2: So, but when you were saying this earlier, you said you would go to the wealth tax next. You're saying here that what you want to do is actually do sort of dedicated taxes. You want to say, okay, this bill has the wealth tax and the student loan. And, and this stuff is in how the you same pay for yeah. yeah.
1: And this is mm-hmm. how you pay for it. You've got all your pay force together. Uh, but notice, notice how much you get from the wealth tax. The two cent wealth tax is enough to do all those things I talked about, plus have $100 billion to put into opioids and still have nearly half a trillion dollars left over. I mean, it's it's a staggering amount of money that it produces because there is such extraordinary concentrated wealth in this country. And getting that two cents opens up now Real opportunity for everybody else. And here's the thing I think that most Americans would like to see us invest in all of our babies, like to see all of our kids get a good start. Threes and four year olds. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody wants to reach in their pocket and pay for it right now. But if you said two cent wealth tax, it's all of our kids who are going to be able to participate in this. I think that matters. All of our kids who've gotten hit with this student loan debt, who don't yet have giant incomes, they're going to get some of that student loan debt forgiven. I think that's something that a lot of people say, you know, that's a good, that's, because the values are right, I think they're then with us on making this kind of change and then here, this is why I said, I think this becomes transformative. It becomes the tangible example of government on your side. Mm -hmm.
2: So what is your narrative of why we don't have it? Because in the polling, this has been clear for a long time. And of course, Barack Obama proposed a universal pre-K, and he was backing that with different kinds of taxes on the wealthy. The Buffett tax was a very popular uh, idea back then, but it didn't pass. So what has been the blockage that you would lift?
1: Washington works for the wealthy and the well-connected.
2: And it's a corruption
1: bill that would change that? It totally is corruption. So the corruption bill starts to knock it mm-hmm. back, but it also is going to take, you got to get out there and beat this drum mm-hmm. every day. It's going to take a lot of popular support and a lot of demand, and you got to be willing to fight that fight. You can't just sit back and say, well, I showed you it made sense. You really have got to be willing to wade into that fight. But I believe this is a moment when people are ready for that. I think that there are so many people who look around and say, this just isn't working. And that's true, not just for Democrats. It's true for Republicans. That's why the wealth tax enjoys huge popularity, not just among Democrats, not just among independents, but a majority of Republicans support it. That's why cancellation of student loan debt. Remember, it's not just Democrats who are getting crushed by that student loan debt. It's Republicans too. And it's Republicans' grandchildren who are getting hit by this it's the reminder that government can work for all of us. That There's not just, you know, one cookie on the table left and if he grabs it, you don't get it. That's the politics of division. That's the politics that Trump has played mm-hmm. all along and that Republicans have played over and over and over. But yes, this is about corruption. Look, I'll give you the best proof point on that. How could it be that after years and years of... Oh, yeah, we want to do these things, you know, lower taxes and where they wanted to go. And you never could get the Buffett tax through. The Republicans could just turn around, go behind closed doors, lock the doors. The only people they let in, I always thought this was great. It was in the House and the Senate. They let in the Republican members, the lobbyists, and a handful of donors. And they wrote the tax tax bill. I'm sorry, I should have made that clear. They wrote a tax bill then that gave away a trillion and a half dollars. They made up a bunch of things that they said this tax bill was going to do. I hope you saw the report that just came out recently that from the government. say uh, mm-hmm. None of that stuff happened. No, it did not stimulate the economy. No, it did not stimulate more investment. No, the benefits did not trickle down to well, much of anyone so. else. Stock buybacks went through the roof. So if you were an executive or a big shareholder, you did great with that tax giveaway. It was a tax scam. And yet, man, they just stood there and passed it, right? Every single Republican voted for that thing in the House and in the Senate. They just crammed the thing through. Man, they had the energy. They did it. And they did it for whom? They were pretty open about it. They did it for their donors. They did it in response to what the lobbyists said. Oh, you got to hang on to this one. And oh, we need a special little loophole over here and a break over there. In fact, I understand for most of the tax specialists, that they still haven't figured out all the giveaways a year and a half later in that tax bill because the lobbyists were so furiously hammering out one more little exception and one more little loophole for this paying client and that paying
2: client. How different would it be for Democrats, or in this case for you, to run against Donald Trump in twenty twenty, after he's had to after he has passed all this agenda, this Republican agenda, versus in twenty sixteen, when he was very fuzzy on well, was he a populist running to reform the Republican Party, or was he a Republican or or or? I mean, people it is true that in polls, people thought Donald Trump was quite moderate in twenty sixteen.
1: Right. right. And, and boy. it seems
2: running actually having an agenda now is gonna snap what he is into place in a way that is seems like a quite different campaign structure.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that it makes a difference. He's now got a record Mm -hmm. and over and over you you can say he can't just stand up and say, I'm for working people, but I gave away a trillion and a half dollars that just all went to the rich guys. Uh, Yeah, I'm all for your small farms and your small businesses, but the tariffs are killing you. You know, it's it's the ability now to come back and just say here are the facts, here's what happens, and just hold him to it. Now, I don't want to kid myself about it. You know, he is a master at distraction and will want to talk about something else. And you want to keep this pretty straightforward and a few core pieces. But I think part of this will be talking about what he's done. But I think the, the much more central part will be as Democrats, Are we just going to be not Trump, in which case we ignore the fact something was broken in this country to elect a guy like Trump? Or are we going to be the party that says, we get what's wrong, we have a plan to fix it, and we're going to build a grassroots movement to make that happen?
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there
3: That's slash Vox. Support for the gray area comes from GreenLight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where GreenLight comes in. GreenLight is a debit card and money app made for families. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.
2: So we've only got so much time left. So I want to do a bit of a policy lightning round here. Sure. So, um, quick policy questions, quick, quick okay. policy answers. You have a pretty uh, interesting housing plan, and mm-hmm. you say that uh, in order to come in for the the grants in that plan, uh-huh. states and localities will have to change their land use laws. Yeah. What were you? What kind of changes are you imagining? What should be different?
1: So I think this is one of those where it's it's time to start looking at best practices and to put some incentive on the table. Regional planning is way 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 overdue. Uh, You know, every little town has to consider its budget right up to its border. But when you think about housing, housing now has much more in the way of regional effects. So one of the features in the plan is to say that the federal government can be a good partner. We can't come in and tell you how it should be done. And there's good reason for that, because it shouldn't be done the same way in Ames, Iowa, that it should be in Manhattan. You know San mm-hmm. Francisco does not look like uh, Jacksonville, right? That these places are different from each other. Small towns are different from big cities. But come up with a plan, and here's here's the way to measure the plan. Does it help reduce the cost of housing going forward so that the calculation for private investment or private mm-hmm. investment, with a small supplement from the government, is likely to produce more housing in this region.
2: Ranked choice voting.
1: You know, this is one of those things I had thought, no, I don't think so. I don't think I understand this well enough. And yet, I've started reading more of the data, working through more of the examples. And there's a lot to be said for it. Um, Engaging more people and saying, okay, talk about your first choice and your second choice, and that that might help us as a country get more people both running for office and engaged in those political campaigns. I I just want to say a little piece off to the side on this. I think democracy is at risk in this country, and I think it's well, we're been not under much of a attack. democracy? Well, it's been under attack, though, for decades now that, that voting has been under attack. We now have a major political party in the United States, the Republicans, whose plan to stay in power is keep a whole bunch of American citizens from voting. I mean, think about that. That's what voter suppression is about. That's what the gerrymandering is about. We now have the attacks on democracy on an independent judiciary, the attacks on a free press. But the part that gives me so much hope is how much democracy itself is reinventing. You know, people now hook up by email, they hook up by text, they come together, people who hadn't known each other before. And ranked choice voting is kind of one of those things that's that's come out of the grassroots. And so I'm, I'm much more interested.
2: We, to me, to me, this is a bigger deal than people make it out to be. So right now the White House is controlled by somebody who lost the popular vote. Democrats have won more votes in the Senate over the past three Senate cycles, and Republicans, they're in the minority. Um, Democrats have the House, but because of the Senate and the White House, they have a big deficit in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court keeps making decisions that make it easier for Republicans to win more elections. We're pretty far from a democracy. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I feel like that is a thing that people do not want to admit about America, yeah. but we're not Democratic Republic. We're just not a democracy. We're just something
1: else. And it's the reminder it's all still sliding the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. The voter suppression laws keep accelerating, right? The efforts to gerrymander with precision uh, keep moving stronger. The overtaking the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell announcing that having stolen a Supreme Court seat from a Democratic president, he certainly wouldn't apply that same rule now that he's got a Republican president. So that's why I think of what I'm doing in this election is very much about spending time at the grassroots. I don't spend time off with billionaires and heads of corporations.
2: Universal basic income.
1: I think there's so much more that we should do before we get there. There's Mm. there's so much more we should do. Start with the wealth tax, come on. Start with universal childcare and education and investment in education from zero on through college. And let's see what that starts to do. Do the student loan debt forgiveness, and that'll start to close the black-white wealth gap. Use my housing plan and attack redlining straight on. Um, Help close the differences um, between the poorest in this country and the middle class. Give people more opportunities. Let's get everybody on board and try that.
2: All right. And I know you gotta leave, but the last question we always ask is what are three books that have influenced you that have changed the way you think that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Oh wow. Um God, right now it feels like the little engine that could. <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> As a new father, not a bad recommendation. Uh,
1: that's right. I thought I actually thought Piketty's book on capitalism. Um
2: Capital in the twenty yeah, first century. Yeah, Capital
1: in the Twenty First Century was Some light bedtime reading. A well a terrific book in making you think about the difference between income and wealth mm-hmm. and how high income is one thing, but building these citadels of wealth, that's, that's something else. And that's deeply disturbing. Matthew Desmond's Evicted and um, $2 a day. Reading those books, both about housing and the importance of housing to economic stability in America, but also what it means to live out at the fringe economically, what what that struggle looks like, and to think about in those circumstances, what does equality of opportunity mean? Um, they're powerful books.
2: Senator Elizabeth Bourne, thank you very much. Good to see you. So, unfortunately, that was all the time I had with Warren. Uh, Presidential candidates, it turns out, are busy, but I felt like I had another 35 or 45 questions. So, hopefully, we'll get to do it again. But I I do want to say, because I think it's worth offering up some of these impressions, you know, I have the position where I end up talking to a lot of politicians. And so you can see what sets them apart from each other. And and something that's just true about Warren, uh, and I think it comes through in this conversation, is her fluency on A vast range of issues, it's unusual. It it isn't how most of them are. And and her ability to connect those issues back, like back down to the narrative level to, 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 to the individual people who are living out those stories, and then up to a social critique of power and structure, it's pretty unusual. I I think that, you know, I'm not here to predict primaries and I'm not, and I'm certainly not here to make endorsements, but I think that there is a reason Warren is surging. And I think that it is the gulf between her and some of the other candidates on these qualities is only going to become more apparent. This is something I think people don't pay enough attention to, but the work she is doing to create these plans, it isn't just that she's putting up a plan on medium.com every couple of days. It's that she's actually spending that time with her policy teams, working through the options, working through the questions, working through the briefing documents. And so when those debates start, and I think this is something that I'm pretty confident predicting you're really going to see that preparation difference between her and the others. You're really going to see, as you see already in interviews, her fluency across these issues compared to the folks who are spending more time in fundraisers or compared to the folks who just aren't doing that preparatory work um, itself. So I don't know. I think sometimes the people underestimate the importance of really understanding the policy, uh, even with Clinton, I think it was one of the things that really did help her and it allowed her to achieve quite remarkable things in American politics, like being the first woman ever nominated by a major party and then winning the popular vote. I think it's easy to see her career now as a failure, which it, there are things she failed to achieve, but she achieved a hell of a lot in a way that is now, I think, too easy to discount. But Warren is impressive, and I think that's going to keep, keep shining through. Uh, thank you to her, of for being here, to all of you, to my producer, Jeff Gell. The Ezra Clown Show is a Vox Media podcast production.
1: More to-dos,
0: less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier.